Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Just a few geezas. <laughs> what? Not geezas. <laughs> that was terrible is what it was. I read an article the other day on uh, why people find puns so offensive. It's very interesting. Oh, yeah. No, I bet it is. Yeah. Send it my way, will you? Sure. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, Chuck. Yes. Have you ever heard of an exoplanet? Yes. You have? Mm-hmm. Well, that's all I got. I'm down, I'm down with Kepler. Kepler's pretty awesome, isn't it? Kepler's way awesome. Let's talk about Kepler. What is it? Well, Kepler is a, I guess, would you call it a program? Sure. The Kepler Project Program? It's a mission. Yes. It's called a mission. And uh, since 2009, they have uh, their task has been to survey uh, the sky. In fact, um, a, well, s- a small patch of sky right now. And it's an outer space telescope. Yeah, sure. It's They're dressed not in spying like, on people in the city park. No, no, no. They shot it out into space. Uh-huh. It's dressed in like a silver uh, jumpsuit, so yep. you can tell it's a space telescope and not just like a regular one. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it has a little 12-degree um, field of vision, and what it's doing is just looking out into the cosmos in the Milky Way still. Yeah, specifically near the constellations Cygnus and Lyra. For now. For now. Um, you got to start somewhere. Right. And you only have 12 degrees, you know. <laughs> it's not the big ear. It's like a journey of a thousand <laughs> miles starts with a single step. Uh, basically, what they're trying to do is see... Uh, I, I think the ultimate goal is just to see what's out there, but what they really secretly get giddy about and titter about... Um, late at night is finding exoplanets that are like our own Earth. I, no, I think the whole thing was a straight-up planet hunting mission. Well, yeah, but like I said, they're not just like, we want to find another Earth. They, they're like, we want to see what's out there because we don't know what's out there. Uh, yes. And they get really excited when it's not a big, uh, giant ball of gas. So the Kepler mission actually, the first Kepler mission ended this past May because the Kepler telescope, I think, ran out of battery power or something like that to turn itself. <laughs> but they started or they're ramping up the K2 mission, which is actually, this is so amazing to me. I love this stuff. It's They're going to use photons, light from the sun yeah. to move it. Pretty amazing. It, the photons are going to move this thing. It's called solar power. To direct it and look in different directions. Yeah. It is very much so. Amazing. Um, so the, the, the whole point is, is to find planets. But really, like you say, what they're looking for are planets that fall within what's called the Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone. And there's a couple of different types of zones. Yeah, if we're talking the Goldilocks zone, what we mean is a planet that um, where there is water that doesn't evaporate immediately or freeze. Well, yeah, that's one way to put it. You know, flowing water would be great. So CO2, that'd be awesome. So the whole... Earth, well, Earth-like planets. Right. Earth-like is what it what it comes down to. Able um, to sustain life. Right. And the, the whole thing... I read this really interesting article, Chuck. And it was... I think it was in Aeon magazine, which 
like it is one of the greatest online magazines ever created. Sure. So interesting. Everything's so well written. It's just great. Yeah. Aeon magazine. Mm-hmm. Aeon magazine. <laughs> anyway, um the the person writing this article said what if our conception of life is really limited? And when we think of life, we think of like um genetic genetic molecules capable of self-replicating. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like us, like life, like yeah. anything that, that can make new copies of itself. Yeah, cellular reproduction. Right. So um, what if there's life has evolved in many, many other ways? Yeah. Not just out in outer space, but here on this planet. Like we could be surrounded by life and not even be aware of it because we're not thinking of it that way. We're strictly looking for evidence of um, DNA-based life. What yeah. if life evolved in other ways and it's we're surrounded by it? That's pretty neat. That's one of those late night college conversations, if you know what I mean. It really is. You know. But with Kepler too, it's looking for planets that could sustain a certain brand of life, which is the life that we know. Yes. And the whole thing is predicated on the idea that you need water in liquid form to be the foundation, the the sustaining foundation of life. Gotta have it. And so that's what that's what this habitable zone is. It's a planet that is far enough away from the sun that it can um, it, it's it's surface water is not going to boil away and turn into um, and just just go into the atmosphere. Go far no, far away from its star, right? Not necessarily the sun, right? Its star is what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Its version of our sun. Yes, yes. Right. I just want to clear that up. Or and but it's not so far away that it's not getting enough heat so that it just freezes. Yes. So it's within this what's called the circumstellar habitable zone. It's or it's in this little distance. Like we are in our sun, our stars habitable zone. Our it's circumstellar habitable zone. That's right. And so it's looking for planets that um, are surrounding stars in that little band. That's. Not so close that it's too hot mm-hmm. and not so far away that it's too cold. Yep. It's just right. I love it. That's called the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. That's the name for it. Um, so there are, uh, they have, the, the Kepler mission has returned, um, a lot of startling information, like thousands, perhaps tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of planets maybe out there. Um, in fact, probably are out there. I think it's 40 billion in the, the, um, Milky Way alone is what the, is that the, the new, current estimates are. Uh, unbelievable. In the Milky Way alone, 40 billion Earth-sized planets, not just all planets, yeah. 40 billion potentially Earth-sized planets in the Milky Way alone. Yeah, so like I was saying, um, giant balls of gas are fun. Gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter, yeah. they're neato, torpedo. But um, as far as science really getting um, getting their rocks off... <laughs> These Earth-sized planets are the ones that that that's where the money is, you know. Right. And when I say money, I don't mean cash money. Although, if we colonize them, I guess it could be cash money. Sure. But the smaller planets, what they call terrestrial planets, uh-huh. Earth-like planets, um, are and terrestrial planets would be a great band name, by the way, because they are uh, they have heavy metal cores. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, rocky mantle and. They have smaller orbits, shorter years, they're close to the host star, all these things that are Earth-like, which could mean potentially, you know, something there. So, okay, so... Something living. You've got the circumstellar 
habitable zone, which is not too close to the sun or not too close to the star or not too far away from the star. Yeah. But there's also um, a larger habitable zone that that uh, kind of – if you have that one, great. But there's some other qualifications that a planet has to hit to be considered habitable. And it, these are galactic habitable zones, right? All right. So part of that is that it has to have a heavy metal core, like you say. Yeah. It's got to be terrestrial. Mm-hmm. It also has to um, – it can't be tidally locked. Yeah. Right? There's uh, We found actually some planets out there that fit the bill, except they are tidally locked with their star, which means only one side and the same side is always facing the sun. Yes. Which means that that is – a very, very hot body of water right there yeah. that's facing the sun. And then on the back side, the dark side, it's just completely frozen. And since it's not turning, the atmosphere is not being um, kept around the planet. It is able to, like, migrate to, like, say, the dark side of the planet and just freeze there. That's a great example of how you can have all these other things. That planet might be in the habitable zone for its star, but it it falls out of the category of a truly habitable planet because it's missing some other factors, for example, not being tidally locked. So that would be the case with Gliese 581G, right? I think so, yes. Okay, so that is uh, was discovered in 2010, and there's been a lot of back and forth between a lot of different countries and scientists saying, is it really there, is it not there? Uh, I think where it lands now is they are pretty sure it's there. Um, but with Gliese 581G, um, it faces uh, the star at all times. Yeah. One side of it does. So it's tidally locked. Tidally locked. Um, although it does orbit once every 37 days, it keeps that face. So basically what they think is if there could be life there, you have what they would call an eyeball Earth with a one part of this planet having being liquid water. Right, and the rest frozen. So like an eyeball in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, kind of neat. The, I think what keeps Gliese 581G in the news is the fact that it's only 20.5 light years away. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about some more of these, but a lot of them are like over a thousand light years away. So let's take a break real quick and we'll get back to exoplanets right after this. You, you, you know. Stop, stop, stop. You should know. So, Chuck, you you touched on something I think is very important before we go any further. There, people say, well, yeah, it exists, or no, it doesn't exist, and there's a lot of back and forth in the scientific community. Yeah, and the reason is, is the as as high powered and awesome as the Kepler telescope is, it really is you, it, it doesn't look at a star and say oh look at that planet that's a fine looking planet right there yeah it looks like I, oh yeah i can see water on there uh-huh look and, at that uh, waterfall yeah it's it like a giant pterodactyl uh-huh. with like a monkey head yes it is no it can't see these kind of things right yeah so th- it, there's different techniques that are used for hunting planets exoplanets um that use deduction in a lot of ways. Yeah, in concert with these telescopes. Right, to surmise the um, the, the existence of planets. So um, f- there's three main techniques yeah. that even these telescopes use. Like uh-huh. the Kepler telescope is a, it uses a photometer, which senses light, right? 
Yeah. And it'll look at a star, and it'll just keep looking at the star, looking at the star. It's got a really good... Uh, something weird just happened with the star. It got dim. And yeah. And then it went back to normal light. And what just um, happened was probably a planet orbited in between the telescope and the star, which dimmed the light of the star. That's right. They call that a transit, and that technique is called the transit method. And so they, like you said, they use that photometer, and um, if they see that dim, that's a, a lead in the right direction. Yeah, and now doesn't prove anything. No, so that 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 planet becomes a candidate planet. Yeah. So they go back and they look at it, and if they say use a different technique, or if they um, if they come up with the same data using that same technique again and again, yeah. then most likely that planet does exist. It and becomes, it becomes a bill? It becomes a, right. <laughs> or a law? It becomes a confirmed planet. Yeah. So it goes from a candidate planet to a confirmed planet. Um, and there's a lot of criticism in the scientific community because when a candidate planet is found, mm-hmm. it is far from being proven as existing. Yeah. But um, it's very frequently rushed out to the media, sure. which treats it like a new planet's been discovered and we know all about it. Yeah. When we really don't even know for a fact it exists, and very infrequently the science behind having to deduce its existence yeah. is explained in in the um, in the articles that are written about them. Yeah. So th- th- it just gets rushed to press a little too prematurely. Got to keep that public interest up, you know. Yeah, but it wouldn't hurt to also educate the public sure. at the same time. No, too. agreed. So uh, a lot of people say, oh, well, there, we just discovered a new planet when right. it's still a candidate planet and it doesn't it, – we don't necessarily know it exists. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so that – the transit method is is the one uh, where the light pulses, the star pulses. It, well, it dims because the planet comes in between the telescope and the yeah. star. Uh, then you have the wobble method, which is pretty neat in itself. Um, it looks for changes in relative velocity caused by the – gravitational pull of another nearby planet. So basically what happens is they use a spectrum of light for this one, and they analyze that spectrum around this, uh, what they think could be a planet. It, uh, planet it? Planet it? Can- a candidate planet. planet. <laughs> nice. A planet it. That's so, great, Chuck. Thank you. So what happens is if it is being pulled by another planet when it surges toward Earth and then away, it causes variations in that light spectrum. So when it comes toward Earth, um, it shortens a wavelength and you see a blue spectrum more. Um, when it goes away from Earth, it lengthens and you see red more. So it's almost like a, a color pulse. Uh, and that is the the wobble method. Right. So that's number two. And that's the Doppler effect. Uh, is it? Yeah. But with light? Yes. Instead of sound. Right. But because the Doppler effect is only sound. No. It it's any kind of wavelength. Oh, I thought the Doppler effect was strictly sound. No, okay. it's it's uh it's any Boy, kind man, of wavelength. Boy, man, you and the Doppler man. effect. I'm telling you, all right. It's the thing that links bats to Earth-like planets. To the Doppler to effect. a passing ambulance. Right. Yes. Man, I'm so psyched about the Doppler effect. <laughs> uh, and you want to go ahead and uh, hit us up with that last one, microlensing. That's pretty neat too. Yeah. So um, when you have a star. And another star passes, if you're looking at a star with, say, if, um, like the, the Kepler telescope, yeah. which the Kepler telescope strictly uses the transit method, from what I understand. Oh, really? Yeah. It's but close-minded. Let's say you have another telescope that... You know, that is more open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're looking at a star, and another star comes in between you and the star you're looking at. Mm-hmm. That star that's in the foreground, that's in between you and the original star. Yes. 
um, actually takes the light and acts as a kind of a magnifying lens. So cool. And intensifies the light of the star behind it, yeah. thanks to its gravity. This is called microlensing, right? Yes. If a planet falls into that, it, that's in orbit around that other star, falls in line with this, it takes that um, that microlensing effect and amplifies it even further. And then you can calculate, based on the amplification of the microlensing effect, the mass of all of the stars and this new mystery planet that just came into, into line with this orbit. Um, and they use that, mind-blowingly enough, to deduce the um, the presence of planets around stars, too. Amazing. So you've got these three methods. Yeah. And all of them, though, again, it's really important to remember this. All of these use deduction. Like, none of these planets have been visually observed. Right. They are all deduced to exist based on um, the mathematical evidence. Yeah. That there's something going on here. Like, that this light is dimming, this color is changing, or the light is being amplified by something. And it all has to do with mass and gravity. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. So, we'll take a little break here and come back and talk about some of these exoplanets, and if there are people living there, there aren't. So, Chuck, uh, remember we mentioned the transit method? Yeah. You can also use these things to deduce even more stuff about these planets once you confirm they exist. Sure. Like um, personality? Right. It's sign, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's something called transit spectroscopy. Yes. Which um, uses the, apparently the atmosphere of a planet leaves a certain kind of mark on the light that it messes with. Yeah. In the star that you're looking at. So not only are you deducing that a planet's there, you're deducing by the effect that that planet has on the light the type of atmosphere it has as well. So yeah, pretty amazing. Right. So once they figure out that, yes, a planet is likely there, they go back and look at it, and the planet goes from a candidate to a confirmed planet. And the, Kepler um, came up with 1,030 confirmed exoplanets, 12 of which are in a Goldilocks zone. Yes. Right? Um, they really start going to town studying this planet and figuring out what its atmosphere is like, where it is in relation to the star, what the temperature is. And they can tell some pretty amazing stuff about uh, an exoplanet just from all of these deductions. Yeah, like uh, I guess let's just talk about a couple of these. Um, the the Gliese, uh I guess it's a group because there are several Gliese's. There's a Gliese. So each one of these um, exoplanets is named after the star that it, it orbits. Yeah. So so the, the Gliese, Gliese is a star. Yeah, and it has several potential uh, habitable planets around it. Right. Uh, we already talked a little bit about uh, 581G, uh, but there's also 581C. Uh, it is 12,000 miles in diameter, um, which is not too much bigger than Earth. Um and makes one complete revolution in 13 Earth days, which means it's too hot. But it balances that out because it has a surface temperature one fiftieth uh, of that of our sun, which means potentially, and again, this is all speculation, potentially the temperature range on the surface of 581C could be 
32 degrees to 102 degrees Fahrenheit, so which is in the wheelhouse. It is in the wheelhouse. I think further study has kind of discarded the idea that um, Gliese 581C is habitable. Already out. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty quick. Right. As far as breaking news goes. But you you raise a really good point that if this thing has a revolution, uh, a year that's 13 days long, the the there's no part of the planet that's going to get cool enough to even things out. It's going to just stay too hot. Yeah. And conversely, if the thing has a, a year that lasts too long, it's gonna it's not going to get hot enough. It's going to stay cool. Yeah. So that's another um, galactic habitable zone factor. Well, I love them, man. Keep them coming. I know. I, I basically went and looked today. I was like, what are the most likely habitable exoplanets? Yeah. And an article from a year ago has a top five that's different from an article now. Like, that's how quickly things change. Right. Well, I mean, these things were all just um, basically theoretical. Oh, yeah. Like, we assumed that, you know, a star would have planets orbiting it. But it wasn't until the Kepler mission within the last, like, 10 years or so. I think it was 1992 from the uh, Arecibo telescope was the first confirmed exoplanet to be detected. And that was like 1992. But once Kepler started going, yeah. it, they started to come like hard and fast. And once they started and people started rushing to press, uh-huh. then science is having to retract them now. And things are going from, yeah, oh, we, well, there's a new exoplanet that right. we could just travel to now if we wanted to, right. uh, to this thing actually doesn't exist or it's not really habitable. Right. Uh, I looked, the most recent one I found was from like three months ago in May of this year. Mm-hmm. And they say, I believe this was from space.com, said that Kepler 438b is the most Earth-like planet yet uh, that we've discovered. Um, it orbits a distant star in the constellation of Lyra, which uh, is where Kepler's looking. Which one is this? 452b? 438b. Oh, it gets really confusing. They need to start naming these things. They do. You know? So 438b is a little bit bigger than Earth, uh, 40% more heat than Earth, uh, than what we receive from the sun, though. Right. Uh, it's small, though, which means it is, um, just because it's 12% larger means it's 70%, has a 70% chance of being rocky, like Earth. Uh, it is 470 light years away, which is not too bad considering some of these are thousands and thousands of light years away. Uh, completes an orbit around its star every 35 days, which is about 10 times as fast as Earth. Um, and basically, uh, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center of Astro- uh, for Astrophysics said that um, they announced this one along with seven other planets um, in the same habitable zone. So, decent chance, but um, like I said, this... This by the time this comes out, this may be old news. Yes, and debunked. Who knows? Um, there's another one that I think they discovered even more recently, which is Kepler 452b, and it's 1400 light years away. Okay, um, and it is an Earth-like planet. I think it's um, like sixty uh, percent larger in diameter than the Earth. Yeah. Um, but that's a but it's still Earth-like. Earth? It is a super Earth. Yes, or it could be. Um, no, that automatically qualifies it as a super Earth. Oh, so okay. it's it's Earth size. size, but it's not so big that it's like a gas giant. It's terrestrial likely. Gotcha. Um, and it's in the Goldilocks zone for its star. Um, and they're pretty excited about it, actually. I think the it has 
a, a mass that's five or six times Earth's. And so you would be, you, you would feel about double your weight or you would weigh double. Oh, wow. Well, you do here. That's no fun. But they think that if we did send colonists there, their bodies would adapt. Right. It'd be like working out all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you would become super strong. And if you came back to Earth, you could just beat everybody up. Interesting. Because you'd be twice as strong. Huh. Pretty cool, huh? That'd be great. That's the point of space travel is to find <laughs> ways to just walk around and come back and beat everybody up yeah. on Earth. It's a bully program. That is a good question, though. What's the point of all this? If these things are 1,400 light years away, what's what's the point? Um, geez, just to keep looking beyond. For, <laughs> I mean, isn't that exploration the whole point? I guess because it's not like we could colonize any of these places. Well, not now, but I think that that some people have an eye toward that that the if we ever do figure out interstellar travel, um it would be really good to know where we could go and take off our helmets and breathe. Yeah. I I think of it more in the opposite way like you can't stop doing stuff like this. No, I agree with you. Cuz then you've just I don't know, then you're just you've given up. Yeah, you're an isolationist. Yeah, you're an adult living on Earth. Right. And, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to die anyway. Well, the other thing that they're looking for that, that exoplanet searches bring into the fold is SETI, the search for extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah. Or just the search for life. Yeah. Um, out, out elsewhere. And again, if you're looking at planets that can sustain humans, they could conceivably sustain other types of life as well. So we're hedging our bets for the future. We're also looking to see if we're alone out there or not. I imagine there are people out there that think this is a big waste of time and money, though. Probably. You know? Yeah. Whatevs. The adults. <laughs> the isolationists. <laughs> yeah. You got anything else right now? No, this is uh, this is good stuff. It's a little heady, and it's such a rapidly changing thing. Yeah, we could revisit this easily. Yeah, I mean, this will be outdated in uh, six months, but... Tops. Hey, we, we like to... Do these uh, topical things every now and then. Uh, um, if you want to know more about Earth-like planets, you can type that into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, Road Rage. and No, not Road Rage. Citizen's Arrest. Oh, okay. There's kind of a difference. Yeah, big difference. Uh, guys, I have a citizen's arrest story um, from 2001. I was a naive 19-year-old uh, behind the wheel of the first car I ever bought myself when I was rear-ended. Um, it was 2001, so we didn't have cell phones, and there was no uh, phone booth nearby, so we could not call the highway patrol or police. The other driver had insurance but did not have a valid driver's license, only an expired one. Later found out he obtained a license during a window of time when the governor of California announced them to be issued to undocumented persons who had immigrated without completing all their legal steps yet. So basically this guy got in a window, had a license at one point, it was expired. Gotcha. Uh, I got my crunch car home that afternoon, and at the suggestion of my parents, called the local cops to file a police report, since we couldn't do one at the scene of the accident. Uh, the officer that came out to my home was the most militant, sour woman in law enforcement that I have ever had the pleasure or displeasure of encountering. She impatiently asked the questions and took notes, all while sneering at me. When I got to the part about the other driver having an expired license, she literally yelled at me for not placing him under citizen's arrest. Mind you, this was a car full of men. I was a 19-year-old girl 
who weighed 100 pounds and was 4 foot 10, and she chastised me for not placing an entire car full of grown men under citizen's arrest for driving on an expired license. Uh, she went on about how many undocumented persons have criminal records and can be very dangerous, and this would have been a good opportunity to get them deported. <laughs> well, this is a, an explosive listener mail. Yeah, uh, or a, a car full of potentially dangerous men. Maybe you should not try and place under citizen's mm-hmm. arrest would be my idea. Uh, at this point, uh, my father had enough of her shenanigans and asked her to leave. So that was the end of that. But we still chuckled to this day over the absurdity of her suggestion uh, and she goes on to say that the guy in the car and the dudes were very nice and they exchanged insurance and it wasn't like a bad scene or anything. Mm-hmm. So um, it just sounds like this officer was not a very nice person. It sounds like it. a little and, bit of a sourpuss. Yeah. And every cop that we heard from after citizen arrest said, don't do it. But yeah. And this lady saying, no, try it. Little four foot ten lady. <laughs> Give it a shot. On a car full of men. And... Um, I also need, want to point out that I forgot that one of the most legendary, remember I was trying to think of famous citizens arrests. The most legendary of all time is, uh, the Night Stalker. Oh yeah, he got arrested by a citizen? By citizens, like he was- Polchek, the Night Stalker did? No, not him, uh, the, Richard uh, Ramirez? Yeah, Richard Ramirez. He was recognized out on the because they eventually found out who he was and blasted his face out everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this group of Hispanic women saw him and started screaming in uh, in Spanish, like "Night Stalker, Night Stalker!" Mm-hmm. And he was gang piled by like fifteen people. I did not know that. And cops had to pull people off. He was almost beaten to death. Wow! So, I guess you would call that a citizen's arrest. I would call that yes. Yeah, like a, a good one. Yeah. An effective one. Yeah, well, they got a serial killer. You always got to feel good about that, citizen's arrest. Yeah, I fell down the rabbit hole of reading all about that guy recently. Yeah. yeah. Oof, man. What a crazy time to be living in L.A. I bet people were... Because there was no rhyme or reason, and it was like one night, then two nights later, then three nights later, then two nights later, Mm -hmm. and just crazy, awful, awful things. That was like the Zodiac. One of my favorite movies of all time is Zodiac. It's a great movie. That's a great one. But then you read Ramirez's background, and it's like abusive father, um, this crazy uncle that was in Vietnam that showed him pictures of like uh, decapitated bodies, and you know he was dropped on his head like three times. What? Like he had a, a whole list of things that's like how to become a serial killer. Gotcha. And uh, so it's two times you're fine. That third time. <laughs> You get dropped on your head. That's yeah. that. I and mean, let's not say every head trauma leads to that, but they think it could have something to do yeah, with no. cases like that. I get it. It was just, it was very sad and fascinating. Huh. Yep. Do you have a particular article you recommend on the dude? Uh, no. Okay. I'll look him up. Yeah. Uh, if you want to let us know about your personal story of something that has to do with what we've talked about in the past... <laughs> How's that for call to action? That's good. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. Uh, you can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.